This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honestly often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portio. My name is Andrew Carroll. And today we are discussing French acting legend Isabelle Père, and we are joined by a very special guest, another iconic French woman. You will have heard myself and Andrew thanking her at the end of every episode. Uh, it's our editor. And our, our guardian com- angel. <laughs> our guardian angel, our editor and our community manager. She's a filmmaker in her own right, and she has the pleasure of being the girlfriend of myself, Charlene Fernandez. Hi, guys. Woo. Hello. And um, usually I'd ask the guests what made you want to come on and uh, discuss this particular actor, but this was more a situation where I wanted you as a guest, and I really enjoyed doing the Julia Binoche episode, and how I was very happy how it turned out, so I thought that um, we could open this sort of like side project of covering iconic French actresses, and I said well, I want to do Pair, and you were said you'd be interested. Can you talk a bit about who Pair, like how famous she is in France, or like your relationship with her? Yeah, so I was kind of surprised when you uh, suggested Isabelle Huppert as a character actor, because like in France, she wouldn't be uh, seen as, as such. Like she's the leading actress, she's like the lead role in so many French movies. So I guess that uh, when like a famous actor is uh, very uh, recognizable in her country, if she goes aboard, does it make her a character actor? I suppose so, because like Elle is definitely like that is a star-making performance or the piano teacher, whatever. But then when she's in English language movies, like Dead Man Down, Greta, <laughs> Things to Come, they're just like complete character actor roles. Yeah. Like Greta is just another version of Ma. Yeah. And you would call Octavia Spencer a character actress. So, you know, Hooper kind of fits that role. Also, it's my podcast. So, like we can cover whoever we want. So Fair I, won't, <laughs> I won't have any criticism. Uh, Andrew, do you want to run down Isabel Pear's history? Isabelle Huppert was born in Paris in 1953. She began acting as a teenager and was quickly recognised as an incredible talent. She attended both the Conservatoire au Rayonnement Régional de Versailles and the Conservatoire National Supérieur d'Art Dramatique. As my French accent, Charlene. Really well done. Brilliant. I'm on Zoom with her now. I can see the disgust in her eyes. <laughs> Straight <laughs> to jail. Yeah. Her debut TV and film roles came in the early 70s and her international breakthrough came in 1977 with La Dantelier, for which she won the BAFTA for breakthrough performance. Michael Cimino's box office atom bomb Heaven's Gate was her American debut in 1980 and may have led to her more selective attitude to English language roles from then on. She's best known for collaborations with well-respected as well as provocative directors such as Michael Haneke, Hong Sang-soo, Jean-Luc Godard, and Paul Verhoeven. She has won two Césars, a Golden Globe, four Lumières, two Cannes Best Actress trophies, two Volpe Cups, an Independent Spirit Award, and was voted Best Actress for both Elle and Things to Come in 2016 by the National Society of Film Critics, New York Film Critics Circle, and the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. As well as her 120 film roles, she has also appeared on TV and has a lengthy and varied stage career. Although widely respected for her dedication to highbrow, boundary-pushing cinema, she does not turn up her nose at lower genre fare like Neil Jordan's Greta, Colin Farrell action vehicle Dead Man Down, or starring in the 11th season finale of Law & Order Special Victims Unit. She's only the second redhead we've covered on the podcast after Caleb Landry, the Lizard Man Jones. (laughs) Um, She has an insane career. She really does. And um, Roger Ebert was a big fan of her because if you ever read reviews of any of her movies, like five paragraphs or six paragraphs of the review are dedicated just to like, who pair is really interesting. But he he said in his review, The Piano Teacher, there is a self-assurance in Isabelle Pair that defies all explanation. I interviewed her in 1977 asking her how she got her start in the movies. She knocked on the door of a Paris studio, she said, and announced 
pronounced I'm here. Was she kidding? I peered at her. I thought not. And then he also says, she is thin with fine freckled skin that does not seem to weather and seems destined to be one of those women who is never really young and never really ages. And his review of Piano Teacher is incredible. It's a really elegant, concise review of this complex movie we're going to talk about. Um, I should say, just because her career is so lengthy, we're covering exclusively from the 90s on with an emphasis on this century. Um, I think the reason for that is there's a nice clean arc from her appearance in Madame Bovary to Elle in 2016. Um, so let's get into it. Um, Shining, you had something you wanted to talk about, right? Yeah, I just wanted to like talk about like her relationship with the roles she chose to play. In a series of podcasts on uh, France Culture, she said that it's not necessarily the character that attracts her. It's more like the director's universe. And she said she has a lot of empathy for cinema before she has empathy for character. She doesn't believe much in method acting, and for her, it's purely intuitive. It's not something that you can learn. She always tries to translate an idea of the truth. So I think that was kind of interesting, because we're going to delve into all of her characters now. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, so Madame Bovary, um, myself and Charlene watched this. It's directed by Claude Chabral, who, uh, before his death, was the person who Huppert worked with the most. And Chabral adopted Madame Bovary, this French story from Gustave Flaubert, considered to be one of the greatest... Almost Oh, um, it's whatever. Our French pronunciations are going to be like corrected yeah, the whole time. I'm going to judge you all. But you've read the book. It's why they consider one of the best of all time. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I've studied the book uh, during my BA in France. Like, it's a very famous book, and I'll just give you a little bit of background. So, during the 19th century, there is a new uh, movement called realism which reports on everyday life and refuses any type of idealization. And in Madame Bovary, the author, Flaubert, uh, transcribes the reality of a petty bourgeoisie and rejects society's convention with irony. So his book was received with shock when he was published, actually, and a trial took place due to three offenses against morality, religion, and good style. <laughs> and so the book tells the story of Emma Bovary, a doctor's wife who has love affairs. And she is a prisoner of her own internal fictions and lives beyond a means to avoid the boring banality of uh, a provincial life. So Flaubert paints a realistic portrait of a woman characterized by her tendency for romantic fantasy and inability to live her daily life to the fullest. So it's one of the most famous French novels and it has been adapted many times in movies. And Isabelle Huppert is actually playing the lead in the, the 91 version by Chabrol. And through her career, you will see that Huppert often plays melancholic characters frustrated with their daily life in search for a better one. I think it all started here in, in Madame the, Bovary. In the Chabrol. In the Chabrol. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, I haven't read Madame Bovary, but just based on the film, I, I, you can tell it's a great story. And I think it's one that hinges on that main character of Emma and the conflicting reactions she provokes in people because like part of you is like go get it girl <laughs> you know all those small town villages suck you know the men who run them are idiots her husband is while being nice is a, is a dope, total dope so part of you is like go to those rich balls you know spend all the money on the dresses but then all another part of you is a bit like whether or not you wanted to escape your kind of living with your father and you wanted just kind of to marry because you felt that's what society expected of you you did marry the dope <laughs> so maybe you shouldn't you know have had a baby with them and then like spend all your money and kind of ruin their futures so you know and um i actually think the interesting thing about the film is casting who in that central role because as she would go on to prove and like as you said like the piano teacher white material letter than bombs l which we'll cover later she's maybe the best actress in the world at playing like truly complicated characters and she can definitely walk that line between acting really 
hateable, but also elicits so much, em- maybe not exactly like sympathy, but empathy in viewers. And like, you know, it's really gripping to watch her kind of delve into those moral mazes. And I, I think it, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I think a lot of actresses, when they would play Emma Bovary, they'd start off being very youthful and very happy. And then the more kind of life dragged them down. But who cares like haunted right away? Emma, when I read the book, I was seeing her more like a delicate character. But Isabelle Huppert brings something that is a bit more, I don't know, more haunted, like a yeah. bit more dark, you know? Cause I th- like, she's not this fragile, innocent woman. Like, she knows what she wants and she go gets it. You yeah, know? yeah. And, like, I think she f- feels the burden of what society expects of her and had to think kind of pragmatically about her choices rather than following her heart. And she's marrying this doctor for stability rather than love and she later realizes her mistake and tries to radically change her life but it just leads to more devastation and um i I think that haunted quality in the way she plays certain scenes like there's one in particular where she had made plans to run away with a lover but he abandons her last minute because he he only wanted a lay yeah you know you know what it's like andrew (laughs) 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 but when she reads his uh rejection letter and we hear her scream before having to kind of resume her composure uh to keep being like a wife uh you really feel for her character and then with those parts that then juxtapose with her kicking her kid when (laughs) she won't stop crying because she's a baby being so cruel to her (laughs) loving husband like that duality is just kind of compelling and i think you'll agree with me but like the movie itself is like solid i, I don't think chabral was known for, for period movies and he mostly made thrillers but like it looks very picturesque there's some interesting use of kind of shadows and staging there's a lot of comedy in the film this great scene where hubert goes to see a priest and she's asking like is it normal to feel so unhappy and he's like yeah people feel unhappy if they have no food or they can't support their family and she's like yes but say a person has all those things but is still unhappy but then there's like kids in the background who are just like playing and the priest keeps interrupting to be like hey kids stop running around and like he never really addresses her and it's just it's really good kind of dark comedy yeah. played great by hooper but i think the main issue is kind of like you can tell you're watching a bridge version of a classic novel and sometimes the pacing is kind of baggy and i i got distracted i, I was struggling to stay focused watching the film yeah and like a lot of like it's very slow for a lot of it and then like a lot of stuff will happen really quickly and then it has a narrator that kind of comes and goes and is just reading passages from the book which, which is isn't... fair enough when like a novel is adapted like i'm not like against too much of voice exposition but it's a little bit much yeah <laughs> exactly case. and like characters kind of like clumsily just show up and like in one scene will just be like this is my whole deal whereas in a novel you'd have like chapters to kind of set yeah. people up kind of yeah. elegantly um we talk about eight women yes this movie is so fun mais si tu crois un jour que tu m'aimes ne crois pas que tes souvenirs me gênent et cours cours jusqu'à perdre haleine viens me retrouver si tu crois un jour Et si ce jour-là tu as de la peine à trouver où tous ces chemins te mènent, viens me retrouver. Si le dégoût de la vie vient en toi, si la paresse de la vie s'installe en toi, pense à moi, pense à moi. Do you want to talk about the plot? Eight 
Strange Woman is a fun musical murder mystery based on a play, mm. and it takes place at an isolated mansion in the snowy countryside of France in the 50s. So there is a family which is gathered for the holiday season, but there will be no celebration. <laughs> Their beloved patriarch has been murdered. Eight women, each is a suspect, one of them is guilty. Which one is it? Ah, did you get that off IMDb? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I love this movie. It's so kitschy. Um, is it Isabelle Huppert? It's not Isabelle Huppert. Aha, uh-huh. do not spoil it. Oh, I won't. Seven more guesses. It's set in the 1950s and, um, you know, it has all these kind of like over-to-top performances. It has all these like Douglas Sirk-esque bright popping colours. I think you'd really like it for that reason. Probably would, um, yeah. It really owns its artificiality. It pushes everything to 100. It feels like though, if the women ever left the house where the whole movie is take place, it would be like Black Mirror or like WandaVision. There'd be like <laughs> nothing outside. It's just a simulation of yeah. kind of 1950s kish. I will say that well, at the start of this movie, I thought that it would be this feminist triumph because it's all these great actresses of all these different ages, eras, and ethnicities given a chance to kind of spar with each other and a chance to shine without being in the shadow of men. Um, it does devolve pretty quickly into um, this kind of weird sort of male view of women and that they can be these alluring temperatures that will ultimately be the death of you. Okay. <laughs> even though the movie is literally just eight women talking for a hundred minutes, it, I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't pass the what the Blechdel test because it's literally just them all obsessing over a man. And then there's all this like lesbian scenes which come out of nowhere and feel a bit yeah. like... Yeah. Like soft core pornography and yeah you don't see any men in it like they just talk about it but it screams that it was written by a man whether it's like yeah. the guy who wrote the play or like the adaptation because you have Catherine Deneuve and Fanny Ardon like very famous French actresses who start French kissing on the floor after getting into a fight What's up with that? It is, but but I do think because everything is so heightened in that respect that it does add to the kind of camp quality that I like about the movie. And I also think that it still is giving these legends a kind of a chance to show off their um, skills as a comedy actress and to, uh, actresses and to look incredibly glamorous. And this is a movie where I think the substance is sort of in the style. Like it's... Talking about the style, like, can we talk about, like, the colors? Yeah, of course, yeah. It's basically eight women who wear distinctive colors that reinforce female archetypes. So I'll just introduce some of them. Yeah, sure. uh, So you have Catherine Deneuve. Uh, she's a widow. Yeah. She wears a blue dress and a leopard coat indicating a cold heart wrapped in luxury. Then you have her older daughter who is in a pink dress. So a sign of innocence, romance, etc. So the revelation at the end that she's pregnant <gasps> from her adoptive father. Oh my God. Is only more shocking. It's very French. Yes. Spoiler. <laughs> then you have the younger daughter. She wears green, which is standing for youth and tenacity, as she is a mastermind of an elaborate plan. You have the sister of the lead, who is played by Fanny Ardant. She's dressed in a flashy red, representing passion, but also danger. You have the new maid, who is in a black uniform, symbolizing a sexuality with a twist of mystery. And finally... You have Isabelle Huppert, who plays the widow's sister. She's a greedy, hypochondriac, hysterical and mannered character. And the most dramatic and theatrical scenes comes from her. She's actually the only character who goes through a change in her appearance. First, she's dressed in a strict green and brown outfit, implying her jealousy, inexperience and repressed disposition. But at the end of the film, she wears a silver dress embodying glamour and elegance. 
So I think she's the most interesting character. Yeah, because she undergoes this transformation and she enters really big. Like she's welcomed by all her relatives singing and is introduced giving like such a look of disdain to her relatives. And when they stop, she's like, (laughs) are you finished your ruckus? (laughs) And she's playing this like bitter person and her styling is perfect. As you said, like she just looks like a stereotypical, like angry teacher or principal. Like it's iconic, a mood. And um, she's the first one to point fingers at people when like they start feuding with each other and like, her sister, Catherine Deneuve, suggests that she might have killed the husband out of jealousy, jealousy because Catherine Deneuve is beautiful and rich and her parents ugly and poor. And her parents just, like, takes a second, makes, like, the craziest over-the-top face, eyes bulging, like, pounding lips, and just picks up a vase and just smashes it on the floor. And then she goes, next time it'll be right in the kisser. <laughs> she's, she's just, like, going, like, ham. She's so good with, like, her comedy. Just, like, she shows a large vocal range. She goes from high-pitched... Uh, hysterical and despiteful comments delivered with uh, speed to more like a deep hushed voice when she slams a song message personnel on the piano and so she sings just after a violent dispute and like you understand that beyond her neurotic side there is actually a sad and lonely woman so that was like very interesting but she's also very good with physical comedy too like she displayed great facial expressions between her nasty faces and mind dance her comedy cues are always on point with her rigid body throwing itself around in all different sort of angle and i think that there is a burlesque tone of caricature as burlesque films intend to cause laughter and rely on the actor and here uper is the most memorable actor of all the eight women yeah, I do, I do agree. And like every character gets a, a song they sing and it sort of informs that character. It gives a little bit more depth. And her song is the song, which Sharon said, it's, a, it's Francois Hardy's personal message. And it's about feeling lonely, but being unable for some reason to take the steps to change that. And she says, like, I'd like to come to you, but I stay hating myself. I'll never come to you. I want to. I just can't. And it's this beautiful rendition. And she's a lovely singer. And Francois Ozon, the director, like captured her in all these um, close-ups as her eyes fill with tears. And it really deepens her character and makes her more recognizable and fills the blanks in on why she is the way she is before immediately just going back to bickering with the rest of her family and mm-hmm. you know the more we learn about the family as we've said like all this kind of fucked up stuff it also starts to explain sort of why she might be the way she is and i just think it's a it's a really great performance that is very in keeping with the movie around her because it's broad stylish and very funny but with this slight darkness underneath that kind of pops out in unexpected places which i think you, is the way i'd sum up eight women right yeah, and, like, I think you can tell it's based on the play, because, like, everything happened in one room, right? But the editing. Yeah, exactly. The editing is, like, really good uh, and worthy to be adapted on screen. And, like, they have a lot of, like, very visual settings during those singing scenes. So I, I, I would recommend it. Like. Oh, it's great. It's on movie as well at the minute, so um, check it out. Yeah, well, you, you'd know the most about editing here, Charlene, so I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I think you're right, though, just about, like, Isabel Huppert's... Um, comedic talents aren't appreciated enough in certain like dramatic movies like things to come or um l even maybe it's just the way she shouts or like whenever something distressing happens like she when she gets a phone call in things to come she reacts by going <laughs> and the all of her vowels whenever she screams are really flat and i don't know what i find it really really funny um i don't know how other people <laughs> react when she does that but um i think she's able to find like a nugget of comedy gold in very like dramatic or even sometimes tragic moments i know that face are delighted and proud to be sponsored by the podcast 180 degrees what do you know about sustainable energy what does being energy efficient actually mean how can you improve your home's energy writing 180 degrees is a podcast answering these important questions 
by sharing the stories of people across Ireland working towards a cleaner energy future. They chat to the people who are making a real difference in the areas of sustainable transport, energy in the home, and in our communities. They hear how businesses and public sector bodies are cutting carbon emissions, and how energy research is informing policy decisions. 180 Degrees is brought to you by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, supported by the Government of Ireland. We all need to care for our planet, our environment, and this podcast is a must-listen. Subscribe to 180 Degrees wherever you get your podcasts from, and check out their latest episode when we are done talking Isabelle Huppert. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. That's banging with Chris and Marcus. Hello, my friends, and welcome to That's Banging with me, Marcus Solera. And me, Chris Mellon. A new podcast celebrating everything good from farm to plate, ship to service, and field and fork. A celebration of everything tasty, fresh and excellent that's coming off our island at the moment. As well as interviews with people who are shaping the best of the best of food and drink from around the country. We'll be available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and everywhere else you get your podcasts. I know that face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I know that face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc., all for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 Euro plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Um, is there a movie you want to talk about? I'll lower the tone a bit and we'll talk about um, Dead Man Down. And she plays um, uh, Valentine Luzon, who is the mother uh, of Beatrice, who's Numi Rapace's character, uh, a scarred woman who is manipulating the Hungarian gangster Victor, played by Colin Farrell, who is also out for revenge. And uh, the clueless Valentine is seeking to set the two. These two horribly traumatized people up. She knows what the tone of the movie should be. Uh, and no one else does. Like Terence Howard is in this movie. Ugh. Colin Farrell is kind of definitely just doing this for a paycheck. Beatrice and Victor live opposite each other in opposite apartments. And they're always like looking at each other and like kind of waving. And uh, the first time we see her mother is when she's reflected behind her uh, wearing this like mint green face mask. <laughs> so uh, that's really funny. And it w- I think the film would make kind of like a decent romantic comedy drama if it had a better script and if everyone accepting Huppert operated outside of like this really glum mode the film seems to just want to dig itself even deeper into and it's kind of like Amelie is living opposite John Wick or someone or, some, or like Jason <laughs> yes, Bourne Valentine and Beatrice's apartment is like wonderfully decorated it's um uh so many bright colors Isabelle Huppert's costuming costumes are great and they're, they're a real treat to look at in a film full of like blue-gray spaces. It's just nice to see Cooper do something as simple and uncomplicated as a dumb American action movie. Yeah, and like it's a 
kind of overbearing mother role, which she has plenty of. But this one actually comes from a place of genuine love as opposed to like narcissism or selfishness or whatever. And that just makes it a lot less interesting. And that's why I turned it off after 40 minutes because I was like, I've gotten everything I need out of Isabelle Huppert in this film and I don't want anything else. <laughs> I, what I kind of like about it is that it is like taken or something like that. And then it'll just be like incredibly serious and be kind of like a little bit romantic at certain points. And yeah. the juxtaposition of tones is weird, but it is sort of like a little bit more focusing on like what what would these characters be feeling emotionally yeah <laughs> and Hubert is very fun in that overbearing mother role I just love how she's always like offering Colin Farrell cookies and she's she's it's completely clueless that all these people are just shooting shooting each other like five blocks away away from her and she's like <laughs> living this weird little rural French life in an apartment in New York City <laughs> um, well I talk about another movie where Hubert is has an overbearing mother the piano teacher the Michael Haneke movie go for it very disturbing but it's also good and kind of unforgettable and um, I have a quote from Haneke which about his work that pretty much sums it up where he says that my films are intended as polemical statements against the American barrel down cinema and the disempowerment of the spectator he, I think he's talking about dad man down there when he says that um, they are appeal for a cinema of insistent questions instead of false because two quick answers for clarifying distance in place of violating closeness for provocation and dialogue instead of consumption and consensus. And um, he made four movies with Isabel Huppert. I think he's her his most frequent collaborator. Um, yeah, in this movie, Huppert plays Erica, a pianist teaching music, uh, approaching middle age. She lives with her mother, who, as I said, is very domineering and is also cruel towards her. The movie begins with her mom ripping a dress Erica bought for herself because she thought it was too expensive. And possibly on account of this relationship, Erica has this strange relationship with control. She's very dominating and strict with her students but is also a masochist she hurts herself and has uh, fantasies about being hurt during sex and Walter played by Benoit Magamel is this young confident man who loves the piano and falls for Erica after seeing her play seeking her out to teach him and they begin a sexual relationship which uh, quickly begins to sour once he learns about Erica's fetishes and uh, it's based on a novel which Hanukkah only agreed to adapt if Isabella Perra was the star, which makes total sense because, like Emma Bovary, yeah. this is a character who is very compelling to watch, um, even when she does bad things. And I'm, I'm not talking about her fetishes here. Like, she is horrible to her students. Like, at one point, she puts <laughs> glass in a female student's jacket pocket out of jealousy after she sees Walter talking to her and possibly destroys that teenager's career because it's her hands that get mutilated. Mm. Like, it's a piano player. And then another point, she embarrasses this younger male student who she saw joking with his friends um, in a shop looking at a porn mag. And she just really kind of like, just makes it hard for him. Like she could just be like, oh, don't, you know, don't worry about it. And she's like, I'm going to talk to your parents about it. And she really lets him like stew in it. Like she's the worst. <laughs> and um, she's even more complicated than Emma Bovary because she's, I think, a mystery to herself. She acts more out of compulsion than true logic and Right away you get the vibe that Eric is the type of person who presents herself as clinical and emotionally closed off, but is in fact holding on to such intense emotion that like she doesn't know how to process it and it gets repressed and manifests itself in ways that are volatile. And there's a lot of silent scenes in Piano Teacher where Hanukkah's camera will just watch Hooper react to a piece of music or yeah. enter into a porn shop and linger next to a bunch of men. And we see her trying to keep a composure, but like subtle facial movements or gestures convey she is moved. And I, I think she says at one point, like, I have no feelings. Get that into your head. If I ever do, they won't defeat my intelligence. And I think that's her vibe. And I think that must be just the hardest thing to do as an actor, like masking one emotion behind another, you know, like a front and making sure both get conveyed to the audience when you're, especially you're already trying to learn your lines and hit your marks. And 
also you add to that like the uncomfortable scenes that Hooper plays in this movie and you know these having these masochistic acts done to her and like doing them to herself like it's very brave to take on and um, I think all that repressed emotion builds into the scene where her and Walter's power dynamic swaps and you know while she had been the more dominant person like she doesn't want loving sex like when Walter tries to kiss her she recoils she tells him what he can and can't do for a while that he has no say in the relationship um, in this pivotal scene she opens up emotionally and Hooper is more outwardly animated and her voice is less monotone and her eyes are wide and she's tearing up and she expresses her true desires for the first time like this urge to be hurt and he's just repulsed though and it's devastating and you you try to they try to continue the relationship but it, it sours and gets uncomfortable and the lines get blurred and it spills over into violence and it, it's just this cold movie where there's like pretty much no hope yeah but um, i think cooper does give it this um strange beating heart which you know sucks viewers in and engrosses them until the final credits by which point you are just like emotionally worn out but you're also kind of replaying the movie in your head because it doesn't give easy answers and it is enigmatic is what Haneke wants like he wants you to parse meanings from this kind of series of stark tableaus that he has created and um fascinating movie but um not for the faint-hearted i'll say <laughs> i think in some ways a more could be seen as a bit of a companion piece to the piano teacher because it also centers upon piano teachers <laughs> so that, that's a link yeah, that's and on the surface it tells another very depressing story but whereas the titles funny games and happy end are ultimately ironic because those movies are just so grim and intense like and more for the real world horrors it is depicting yeah. i think it is a really a movie about love and you know, on the surface, it's about a woman's slow physical, mental disintegration at the end of her days, you know, suffering from dementia. But really, it is about this universal thing, which we could all face in our lives at some point, which is how do you manage the suffering of somebody you love? And um, it's about George and Anne. They're an elderly couple and they're well-off, retired music teachers. They have a daughter, Isabel Paris. But uh, one day, Anne has a stroke and the couple's bond of love is severely tested with George struggling with the burden of taking care of her and watching his love of his life disintegrate before his eyes and I think it's true Isabel Huppert's character we meet Anne after the movie jumps forward ahead in time and she's regressed further and she's had this second stroke and she's completely paralyzed and she, she's not making sense and there's this long scene where Anne is trying to tell her something but she can't express it and she can't get the words out and it's it's so frustrating to watch because we don't know what she's trying to say but it's also devastating because this person who we followed and we was full of life is now so weak and frail and Huppert is acting as so authentic in the scene because she she's not upset right away like she's trying to keep the conversation normal and keep her mum engaged but when she leaves the room she's just like in floods of tears probably the best scene in the movie is a scene between uh and who pair doesn't think her father should be left looking after her mother in the apartment for most of the day alone like she wants to put her in a home but the mom had made the father promise he wouldn't do that and also the mom doesn't like having visitors including her daughter because she finds her condition humiliating like when she has these like brief moments of sort of clarity so for all these reasons and also because he probably doesn't have time with the care he's given her the dad stops responding to his daughter's calls so she drops by the house unexpected and they have this really terse conversation and she says like does it not occur to you that like we're concerned and he says very matter-of-factly like your concern is of no use to me i don't have time for it it annoys me you've reason here saying what's right who do you think you are but then throughout the scene like by hearing all the things her father must do day before her mother and seeing the state she is in who pair comes to agree with the dad and but he also realizes that he can't ban his daughter from seeing his her mother and just this gorgeous five to ten minute sequence that 
captures the grayness of situations like this and where no one's a villain like they're both right and wrong like it's wrong of Hooper to presume she knows better but she shouldn't be shut out and it's wrong of her father to be so inconsiderate but he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders and scenes like that are just littered throughout the movie there's also a scene where in another moment of clarity Anne says of George like you can be a monster sometimes but you are so kind and then there's a sequence later in the movie where George is giving her water and she she can't feed herself anymore and she keeps spinning it out because she at that point she wants to die and he hits her in frustration and it's shocking but you get it because he doesn't want her to die and you know you watch a lot of US movies where characters only have one trait in a more like everyone has a rich internal life like everyone yeah everyone's a human George can simultaneously be a bit of a monster sometimes but can be the kindest person simultaneously that is what gives this movie a humanity that I think Hanukkah's other movies lack. And I think um, the scene which I mentioned with Hooper is the best example of that. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, like, well, maybe I've gotten kind of too heavy. Do you want to talk about Greta? Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. You can't do this to me, to us. Are you a child? No, you're the child. You need someone to love. You need a mother to hold you. You love someone and you're afraid to love. We both know it's true. Don't you dare talk to me about my mother. Darling, don't you understand? She had to die. She had to die for me. Are you out of your mind? You just can't accept it. Look at her. She's full of love, of grieving. She's gone from this. Just accept it. It's called moving on. You don't mean that six feet of Leave me alone. She's gone. Leave me alone. Greta, who is an older woman, befriended by Francis, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, after Francis returns a handbag to the enigmatic French woman. A shocking discovery prompts Francis to sever ties with Greta, prompting the older woman to begin stalking Francis. And, you know, basically a 90s thriller unfolds from there, but set in 2018. It's a real, like, trifecta of, like, incredible actors in Huppert, Moretz, and Maike Monroe. So, uh, yeah, it's a film, like, reminiscent of, like, the best of the 90s thrillers including ones that like the director neil jordan direct, himself directed but it's still it's it does kind of feel like a pale imitation of these great movies but it's still like a wonderfully like camp looking film uh it looks very and makes dublin city look very glitzy and glamorous which few films ever manage it's standing in for new york as well which is kind of impressive right <laughs> yeah yeah like who pairs performance is kind of the sun greta orbits around and she's like alternatively like sickly sweet and like sadistically sour she's just like there are points where like oh i see my own granny in her and there are other points where you're like jesus christ she's not a she's not human she's a monster and um neil jordan really knows how to use isabel who pairs like more um over the top comedic talents there's obviously the scene where she spits her chewing gum into francis's hair and which drew plenty of gasps in the cinema from when me you and sean saw it Stephen. And it was a weird cinema experience as well because um, it was a theatre full of older women and their kind of middle-aged daughters and then the three of us near the front. (laughs) So like, yeah, plenty of gasping uh, at Greta, spitting gum in Francis's hair or syringing um, Stephen Rhea in the neck. Again, just going back to the comedy, Greta goes to the restaurant Francis works in when she's stalking her and orders like the house wine that uh, Francis recommends and takes a sip and Francis is like, how is it? And Greta goes... A little fun at first, but disappointing in the end. <laughs> Just like you. <laughs> oh, it's such a fun movie. Yeah, I think what's great about um, 
probably a French actress speaking English is that you, you get like she has she just has a very musical voice when she speaks English. It comes across an L a lot as well because she says certain English words and each syllable is like different notes on a piano or something like that. It's just very unique and just very fun to listen to. Yeah, I, I see what you mean about um, her musical voice when she's speaking English. Mm. Uh, I think in French, it's not as musical. It's more like flat and like deep. Mm. Mm. Do you want to talk about Asphalt, which is a movie you really like? Oh my God, yes. I discovered Asphalt, or in English it's called Macadam Stories, if you want to check it out, um, during a film festival in France, where the actor Jean-Louis Trintignant introduced the film of his uh, ex-son-in-law. So Macadam Stories creates incongruous encounters between individuals living in the same building, but who would have never crossed past otherwise. So several atypical couples are created through awkward and poetic moments of uh, communion. So for example, you have a fake photographer in a wheelchair who falls in love with a night nurse. You also have a cosmonaut who comes straight from space to land at an Algerian woman's home. I'm sorry, fake photographer and cosmonaut? It's, it's very like quirky. Kooky, yeah. Yes. Okay. okay, yeah. You have a young milk addict. The way people are addicted to drugs, he's addicted to milk. Yeah, okay. you got it. Cool. Happens to the best of us. <laughs> Who gives advice to an aging actress, played by Isabelle Huppert. And so this actress is bitter about her career, so the young man helps her find the right tone for an audition tape. And so while they are recording that tape, she freezes at some point, like she freaks out, and she says, I'm afraid to say anything. And you just answer, it's okay, as long as you say it right, not in order to be chosen, but for the now. And like... At that moment, you just cry. Uh, <laughs> and so the light-hearted tone resonates with laughter during absurd situation. It's quite what the fuck, as you could like understand from the plot. Mm, and yeah. it depicts a social microcosm of a suburban building. And so the moving story touches a various sense of human connection. It talks about solitude, people looking for one another, some in search for love, and others in need of a maternal figure. And so it's basically three stories about falls. And the director explained, how can one fall from the sky, from a wheelchair, or from a pedestal and recover? This is a question that crosses Macadam stories at every moment. And so they're all neighbors in the same building, and that building is full of holes and cracks and tags, and the gray color of the asphalt is omnipresent on the road, in the hospital, in the building itself. Even the sky is always gray <laughs> and you also have a, a 4.3 aspect ratio which is beautiful and like it gives a real sense of intimacy but you also feel the characters are like walled up in reinforced concrete and despite everything they are luminous inside this degraded environment and the last scene is full of hope and i remember during the screening where Trentignan was introducing the film he said we should all get along we didn't come to her to kill each other to exploit each other we came here to get by, to pull through together. This film is incredibly intelligent, without ever being indulgent. They are not heroes, but we love them. I love them. So I'm myself convinced it's a hidden masterpiece, so just go watch it. I feel like that quote could apply to Amor as well. <laughs> That's true. Um, can I talk a little bit about white material? The Claire Denis movie. Oh, I suppose you can, Stephen. Go ahead. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, we've talked about Claire Denis quite a bit on the show because she made High Life with Mia Goth and Let the Sunshine In with uh, G.F. Nash, which yeah. is your favorite movie. And, <laughs> I um, wouldn't go that far, but... <laughs> 
But Denis was raised in colonial French Africa, which I actually wasn't aware of, where her father was a civil servant, um, something which I, I imagine helped to inform white material, this movie with Huppert. Uh, she plays Maria Vial, a struggling French coffee producer in an unnamed French-speaking African country, waiting for this big harvest, who decides to stay at her plantation in spite of an erupting civil war. And uh, not to compare all Euro cinema negatively to u.s cinema like i love u.s cinema in its own way too but anytime like a u.s movie goes to africa or the middle east the soundtrack is either like ah or it's like <laughs> tribal drumming whereas in this movie yeah. it's just like um Denis got tinder sticks who do a lot of her soundtracks do this uh swooning but like elegiac haunting kind of post-rock score and it's really incredible and it's just indicative of the fact that the whole time you're watching white material you feel like you're in the care of someone who's not a phony someone who like i know the place i know the people you're yeah. in safe hands and um, i know that place i know that place <laughs> it's our travel show but um i also think that kind of confidence extends to who pair in the movie because you you never get that you know the macro mode joke where in that movie courage under fire meg ryan shows up and is like i'm a helicopter pilot and the audience just goes no you're not you're meg ryan <laughs> from the opening moments where who wants to take a bus but there's no space so she rides on the back on you know the outside of the bus holding onto a bar yeah. like you buy this character like there's scenes where she's threatened at gunpoint for refusing to pay bandits 100 quid to like take a certain road and she just stands up to them before eventually relenting because like, yeah. we're going to kill you but she's like <laughs> i would have just had a urine in my pants like right away <laughs> you know? of course you would have. <laughs> and, um, the minute like the workers start to leave because they they're fleeing because of the civil war like she just gets into a truck drives into town and recruits like a bunch more workers like you really get the vibe that she is has this great confidence that she is very sort of like a person who's not afraid to get her hands dirty which is great as much as i love the film and i'll talk a bit about why i do i think who character is a bit of an enigma and the movie unlike something like the piano teacher maybe doesn't give her quite enough context to fill the gaps because who says she is staying because she has to do this harvest and it'll be a big payout but we come to learn that her plantation is already in bankruptcy and it seems like one harvest isn't really going to solve things and also she only runs the plantation like it's her ex-husband's father founded it and you know while she is due to inherit it, it the stakes for her staying are a little bit muddy and which you know maybe the movie addresses because there's a lot of times in the movie people are like why are you staying here and she always answers something slightly different and one time it's a really weird response she says how could i show courage in france and it's never really followed up on but it's just like a fascinating answer you're like what mm. and um and you also kind of wonder is like denis making some statement about white privilege or in this case kind of misplaced white privilege because like the idea that because Hooper's character is french yeah. and white she won't be impacted by this civil unrest that is growing um even though this rebellion is probably happening because the powers that be enable colonizers to become wealthy on the back of natives work um but then also like the movie never really treats hooper like a baddie because she makes her complicated character too likable to be reduced to just that so the whole thing is a little unusual also like in the, like a lot of claire Denis movies which sometimes i kind of struggle a bit with her films is that there's a point where events move from being literal to metaphorical and don't really kind of flag it i'm thinking of mm. that bit in high life where andre 3000 buries himself alive hate that movie <laughs> and and i think like stuff like that happens here too so i think in terms of plot and character motivation the movie can be a bit opaque but what i love about it in those complex contradictions i mentioned and also in the film's sort of elliptical structure where you know from the beginning like things are going to go bad like there's this sense of doom and there's also this like jarring unexpected violence and nightmarish imagery and i think white material really captures the feeling the atmosphere of what it might be like to be caught up in a violent uprising and be thrust into this crazy situation that is out of control and that you don't understand. So I, I 
highly recommend. I think it's my favorite Claire Denis movie I've seen. I still have to watch a lot of her filmography, though. Mm. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about Louder Than Bombs, which is a movie I love? Yeah, sure. I love Louder Than Bombs as well. It's I think it was maybe the second or third film I reviewed for the University Observer when I was in UCD. But you hear them trying to be quiet, just waiting for you to come out. They don't know how much they have changed since last time you saw them. Oh, thank you for the You have to learn all the names of the new things they are interested in. Things that will change again a month from now. After a few days, you feel better in the role. No, it's not even a role. You like it. They want you there. They love you. You can feel it. And you love them too, more than anything. But you still feel like you're in the way. Isabel Huppert plays Isabel, a war photographer who died by suicide several years before the film takes place. And a retrospective on her work is due to be published. And her widower, Jean, who's played by Gabriel Byrne, and their children, Jonah and Conrad, come together to uh, look at her work and see what's, what's to be published, what's to be destroyed, and what's to be kind of kept. I think I like this movie because it's a film about grief and it's kind of how we process it. Grief is maybe the strangest emotion of all and I think that's, some, that's something Louder Than Bombs really understands and tries to make its audience understands and it because it, grief is something that it can make monsters out of us or it can turn us into incredibly empathetic people and it's shown through her sons and uh, her husband Jean what uh, grief kind of does to people because it turns her into kind of like an angel in Jean's head a villain in Jonah's and sort of this ghost he never really knew in Conrad's head and these impressions all come together kind of linked by Huppert's performance and turn her into a complete human being with uh, like as many flaws and qualities as the film's living characters and I think when a character who's dead years before the events of the film take place appears in flashbacks you're kind of like oh this is like sort of angelic figure or some kind of spirit that'll teach us a lesson and it's not that there's not a lesson learned in this it's just that we kind of have to puzzle out what the lesson is ourselves and it's just one of those odd kind of novelistic and incomplete american dramas that americans just don't really make anymore it's just, it's like it feels like a like you're saying Stephen, how like american cinema characters have one trait whereas in european cinema they will have many i think this film is like an English language with an all-American, well, not all-American, but like a American-heavy cast that has so many characters with specific character details and quirks, and it makes it feel as if this is like a snapshot of their lives rather than a single story with like a beginning and an end. And I think that separates the American slop from the hot couture of European cinema. Yeah, and it's directed by a European, you know. As well. Yeah, Joaquin Trier, yeah. Louder Bombs doesn't offer like resolution because grief doesn't have resolution and it's rare you, that you can't find that like kind of absolute truth in cinema yeah while you're at it do you want to talk about Elle a little bit yeah sure the greatest movie ever yeah we've all watched it right <laughs> yeah we've all seen it so um Poupère plays uh, Michel a video game company CEO who is uh, raped in her own home by a masked assailant and as her life begins to fall apart around her, she must contend with further attempted assaults and eventually begins playing kind of a cat and mouse game with her rapist. 
Just fun fact, it's one of two films in two consecutive years, first being Louder Than Bombs, second being L, that um, kind of, of has video games as a central plot point, something you, you wouldn't really see in an American movie. Mm. I kind of like the game, video game stuff, because I feel like it's she's producing the sort of misogynistic content and now she is seeing the impacts of possibly that misogyny kind of yeah 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 ricocheting back you know yeah. yeah i think this movie is like the most playful movie about the least playful topic ever and i, I think the real joy of watching hell is being firstly like i have no idea where this is going just delights in subverting your expectations there's so many points in the film where it sets up an avenue the movie could go down and then we'll either just resolve it in like 10 minutes and just go somewhere completely different or we'll just like completely ignore it and also amazing is like 30 minutes in and you're thinking like Verhoeven is pulling this off like treating the rape and the aftermath with the proper weight and respect it deserves which I and I think it's truly harrowing all that sequences but at the same time it's this character study about a hugely successful woman but also this human disaster who <laughs> <laughs> fair plays who is having affairs with her best friend's husband and yeah as I said runs this gaming company which perpetuates the sort of you know sexism and hatred of women yeah. and maybe she's seeing the repercussions of that now and um you know why she does all these things and like what are the neuroses that she already had pre her assault because like the assault is comes second in terms of like the most interesting thing about her backstory <laughs> once we come to learn about her father and everything yeah, yeah. worst stuff happened to her yeah exactly yeah. and then um on top of that it's this odd comedy of manners about like the thin veneer of respectful society and how like if you just look like just slightly a little deeper into things like people are so strange and i, I love all that stuff and i think it's just a director who people have constantly underrated throughout his career like this is the guy who made robocop and basic instinct and got like five percent from rotten tomatoes or whatever for yeah, like showgirls yeah. and like people really didn't give them the i think the respect and like looked at like oh these movies are actually really subversive and they're like trying things and they're like smuggling all this kind of interesting commentary into a more commercial package and i, I just think l is him firing on all cylinders and showing that he's just still as relevant as ever um you want to talk about a restaurant scene in particular right she plays, like, an imperceptible character in the way she reacts to the assault. Like, she doesn't, as you were saying, respond the way, like, it would be expected. Yeah. And she's not in denial, but she's kind of numb by it. She just has, like, another way of functioning, and, like, you kind of have to accept that as a viewer. Uh, and so I'm just going to give an example. There is no spoiler. It's in the trailer. But uh, Hooper and her friends are sitting at a restaurant, and so she announces that something happened to her, and when she briefly explain what happened she says it in such a detached emotionless nonchalant way so it's very destabilizing for her friends and the viewer she even seems impatient that her friends are asking questions and she ends the scene with the line it's over it doesn't need to be talked about anymore we're not going to dwell on it how about we order and you're just like, what? <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, the character is between not wanting to be a victim and at the same time being drawn to danger. Like, she doesn't want to be a victim, but she's not a typical Avenger. She has a will to power and she uses her sexuality to uh, own ends. And Uber described her character in Elle as a post-feminist building her own behavior in space. Yeah. And in a podcast by Hollywood Reporter, uh, she said, We knew that beyond the burning material, there were so many layers. It's disturbing, but there is also a lot of questioning. If you view her as a survivor, you understand that all she does is beyond pain. The humor in the film operates like a stoic posture. 
She voluntarily has a distance to what happens to her. She also wants to take control, not for mere pleasure, but to understand the mystery of sexuality and desirous mechanism. It's more like an experiment about something she wants to understand about herself. So the film is always on the edge of what is commonly accepted as acceptable, but it's not just for the sake to provoke, but it's more to question our usual reference. And at the end, there is, without spoiling, but there is a sense of revenge and punishment, so the integrity of the film is in the right place, I think, as we discover at the same time a new type of female character. Yeah, yeah I think that's my take on the film, if you read my review, is that it is a movie that is examining and maybe twisting on its head perceptions of women particularly women who go through trauma and like Isabella Perez's character just because she was assaulted in the movie she it doesn't prevent her from being a mother it doesn't prevent her from being a business person yeah. it doesn't prevent her from being someone who has all these other neuroses that have happened to her pre her assault and it's kind of I think a movie about strength and resilience in its own strange way I think it's amazing. Do you want to talk a little bit, Andrew, about um, Things to Come? Because I came out the same year as Elle, and as you said, she was got kind of joint awards buzz that year for the two movies. Yeah, sure. Let's handbrake turn into Things to Come. Yeah, I feel like it, it, this is a film that's similar to, I think, Let the Sun Shine In. It's not directed by Claire Denis, it's directed by Mia Hansen-Love. Isabelle Huppert plays Natalie Chazou, a high school philosophy teacher, uh, which I didn't know they taught in high schools anywhere. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, of course you do. It's France. Um, so she, yeah, she's a high school philosophy teacher who finds herself unexpected, unexpectedly free after her husband leaves her and her mother dies. And one thing I noticed about this film is that for someone who's been happily married for thirty years, Isabelle Huppert sure plays a lot of divorced women. It's kind of it's a film about how philosophy kind of interacts with and often conflicts with life, and how it helps us find meaning in kind of our tragedies and our triumph. And it's also a, a film that recognizes, much like Natalie herself, that philosophy is both one of the most useful and useless things ever thought of by humans. And it's a re- it's like Let the Sunshine In. It's kind of like a really a very sunny film with uh, lots of really uh, gorgeous kind of handheld photography. And uh, it just makes you want to visit Paris in the summer. It's a film that on the surface feels quite like light and airy or, even, or maybe even slight and pointless if, you're, uh, if, if you hate it or if you're not willing to engage with it. But I think it's a film that's kind of about like the basic human needs like love and you know, the necessity to mourn and uh, to live essentially as a film about the ties that bind us to each other, how they change over time and an examination of life and how it only really ends if we let it. And it's all like completely and fully realized in a really complex and layered performance from Isabella Pair. And it's easy to see why she won so many awards in 2016, because Things to Come and Elle both really let her skill as an actress breathe on two extremes of a very already extreme scale in terms of her talent. Yeah, and exactly. Like, and Elle, I think, is a movie that doesn't quite work if it's not Isabella Pair. And from what you're saying, Things to Come hinges kind of entirely on like this character and like this performance right yeah i wanted to finish on comma agent because isabelle Huppert played herself in um comma agent which was is this sort of french version of extras do you want to maybe explain about it yeah so basically it's like french actors playing themselves in the delightful self-mocking manner with witty dialogues and so the story takes place in the parisian talent agency where uh four agents fight for the best contract for the protégé, uh, often crossing the line into private matters. And each episode features one star, while consistencies get thanks to the twists in the company's management. 
and it delves into the backstage of a fascinating industry while also managing to both fulfill and subvert the expectation of its guest star. So Isabelle Hubert, she appears in uh, the episode 4 of season 3 and here the prolific actress is a rigorous work alcoholic uh, shooting several films at once thanks to a meticulous plan. However, in doing so, uh, she breaks her contract with an American film in which she is starring, adding some narrative tension in the season. Hubert doesn't take herself seriously and paints an authentic self-portrait, and I think it's a really good episode. What yeah. did you think about it, Steve? It's really funny because in it, like, she's just she just doesn't take like work breaks. She's like, they're like, oh, we're not shooting for like two weeks, and she's like, oh, cool, I'm gonna make like another movie. <laughs> and like, she does make movies like that because there's that movie Claire's Camera, yeah, the Hong Sang Happened like movie, that, yeah, which is like it's 70 minutes long and just takes place at a film festival and it was like they just had like four days with Isabel Pair and they just crafted a movie around her schedule <laughs> and um it's just fun that they zeroed in on that kind yeah. of like delightful uh part of Isabel Pair's career it's like she makes like even now like she her next movies that she's gonna be in are so diverse like she's in this movie called Mama Weed which just played at the i5 French film festival where she played like some, I'm scared about that one. Yeah, she plays like some sort of like social worker who ends up becoming a drug dealer. For yeah, <laughs> but it's nice to end up on Come My Agent because it really like summarizes all of her prolific career. Yeah, and also the fourth season of Come My Agent just came out. On so Netflix, it's on Netflix. Yeah. So. Okay, I might check it out. It's another example of her having kind of great comedic timing on top of playing these like incredibly um, intense, perverse. complicated individuals, yeah. perverse people. <laughs> Yeah, will we wrap up there? Yep. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Email us at iknowthefacepod at gmail.com if you'd like to appear on the show, you have someone you'd like us to cover, or I don't know what other reasons people would email us. Give us an email. Whatever. Um, <laughs> follow us on Twitter at iknowthefacep1. Follow us on Instagram at iknowthefacep. Follow us on Facebook at iknowthefacepod. Thanks to Shalene Fernandez in person for editing and for running our socials. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. You can check out the Headstuff section for me, the Headstuff film section. Shalene, anything you'd like to plug? Your documentary, Maria, is now streaming on Vimeo for free, am I right? Yeah, so I made a documentary about uh, immigrants from the Spanish Civil War, which screened at Trinity College in Dublin during the Silk Road Film Festival last year. So if you want to watch it, it's available for free on Vimeo, and it's called Maria, and you will find the link on their Instagram page. Um, it was the same festival with where Abel Ferrara, where I got to interview him. So like, Shani Fernandez, Abel Ferrara, too terrific filmmakers side I by wished. side two of the greatest filmmakers <laughs> <laughs> um, please if you listen to our show and you like it consider signing up to Headstuff Plus and donating 5 euro a month you'll unlock special bonus episodes of the show three of which we are need available money. now we pay us <laughs> um, there are, those bonus episodes are around 20 minutes each it's also a little looser just talking about stuff we like new movies older classics TV please do consider signing up it would be a great help to us and we'll just be supporting the show uh, on that note see you later Cinefunks bye bye This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.